Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Jacob Jarvis and back with me is my favourite podcast raconteur, bunker and oh god what now favourite, Alex Andreu. Good morning, Alex. Morning, Jav. Alex, I've asked you this before, so please don't get bored with me, but does it finally <laughs> look like a Northern Ireland deal is due this week? Oh, Jacob, someone's been asking me that since about 2018. Um, it does feel very 2018 at the moment, doesn't it? Yes, it's very 2018-ish. Um, uh, Johnson is trying to get into power. <laughs> <laughs> My sources were saying that uh, an announcement of progress would come on Friday afternoon. This was last week. And the official signing would probably happen on Tuesday. Now, the first bit happened but the second bit appears to be being slightly delayed. That's my that's the, the sense I get from my commission contacts and from how the sort of the positive noises that were being made round about Friday were slightly cooled over the weekend. You mentioned Boris Johnson, so let's get him out of the way. Uh, his, his apparent concerns, are they going to, uh, to scupper the developments and the the positive movement that we've seen well i mean yeah according to one ally that's the case but then according to another ally he wasn't doing anything of the sort i mean this is just boris johnson being boris johnson the truth is in a strange way he's largely irrelevant in this except in the in, in the ways he can influence the dup because if the dup back the deal there is very little Tory backbenchers can do without looking like complete twats. You know, if if the directly interested unionist party that, that is opposing this arrives at a place where they can endorse the deal, you know, what Marc Francois says is really of very, very little relevance. And the, the interesting thing is that the DUP loathed Johnson for what he did last time round when they feel he betrayed them completely and sold them out. And so, in a strange way, his, his interventions might be nudging the DUP into sticking it to him by being more reasonable. And so, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic, but... But can we just take a, a, a single moment this morning to appreciate that just the supreme irony of Johnson and Frost now having become the foremost voices of oppositions to element of the deal that they negotiated and signed? Because this is what's happening here. Are you, are you suggesting that Boris Johnson could be a bit of a, a hypocrite or a, a turncoat <laughs> of some kind? <laughs> I, I won't have that on the podcast. We won't have that. I am that. suggesting that this is <laughs> unusual even for him. He has literally disappeared into the wings, done a quick costume change and come out with a sort of Marx Brothers glasses and moustache <laughs> um, thing on, pretending that you know, the the deal that he sold to the country in 2019 as getting Brexit done and oven ready was so wrong that he now opposes any attempt to fix it and supports the protocol bill, which basically completely countermands it. I mean, even for Johnson, that is a, a next level hypocrisy. 
At this moment, there's suggestions that Sunak could kind of ignore everyone and try and go for what he thinks what he thinks is right. So he could potentially set himself up for a showdown with the DUP and he'll set mm. himself up for a showdown with Johnson. Is he at risk at the moment of being you know, not quite Brexity enough and not quite anything enough for, for anyone? Is this a yet again a, a crunch week for Sunak? Uh, I mean, he will get the showdown anyway, right? The the deal has largely been agreed, really. You know, the green and blue lanes idea has been around for a long time. There's a little bit of movement on state subsidy, as I hear it. There's a little bit of, of movement on regional involvement in EU legislation, which is something that happens you know, under the Norwegian model, it happens under the Swiss model. So what you get is people from a region participating in the sort of draft consultation stage of major new regulations. There's stuff like that. The UK will cave in on the European Court of Justice as being the final arbiter. It was always going to do that because the EU was never going to accept any other body defining its own single market rules. The UK will have to drop the protocol bill. Maybe there will be a sweetener in exchange. There's been talk about membership of the Horizon Scheme, which has been a little bit prickly and now might be offered as a sweetener on this. So, you know, we know the contours of the deal and they're not going to change because they have been decided by comparing how far the EU is going to go with how far the UK is willing to concede. And I think the DUP also know that. So the DUP will only continue resisting the deal if they think there are further concessions to be gained, either from the EU or from the UK government. So Sunak, in a way, is simply the the trigger in the middle of this, this. He will get the showdown with his backbenchers anyway, because that showdown is not motivated currently by anything to do with Brexit. It's not motivated by anything to do with the protocol. It's simply the instrument that backbenchers who dislike him anyway, like those who are still sore that trust went down like a lead balloon, or Johnson loyalists with continuing bring Boris back pretensions. Mm. It's simply the the weapon they are using to make his time in office difficult. If it wasn't this, it would be something else. you know. And when it's not this, they will simply move on to something else. They will start objecting to some planning bill. They will start obje- objecting to some immigration policy. Because none of this dissent is motivated by rational policy reasons. All of it is motivated by the continuing civil war going on in the Tory party. On the on the topic of the civil war, so Mordaunt said that uh, Johnson's comments were not unhelpful. Why can't senior Tories get a, a straight line when it comes to his interventions? Not unhelpful is is quite a bizarre turn of phrase, I would say. Because they believe fundamentally in his power of resurrection. And so they don't want to get on the wrong side of him, even now. 
And it's that belief, ironically, that gives him the power of resurrection. Mm. It is effectively the myth he's created about himself, that he always bounces back, he always you know, gets what he wants, that is making them hesitant to treat him like there has been that he is. He's, he's a, sort of like an evil Tinkerbell, you know? If every, <laughs> if every Tory stopped believing, the prick would blink out of existence, but they just refused to. <laughs> One former PM, though, who people seem to be getting a little bit more actually sick of is, is Liz Truss. Uh, Jake Perry said last week that her political inf- interventions should be like sex in a long and happy relationship, infrequent but anticipated with glee. As well as tell us too much about Jake Berry's <laughs> about Jake Berry's sex life. Sorry, sorry to this to you early on a Monday morning. Does that also reveal which factions are doing a bit better in this in this civil war at the moment? Does it indicate to you, you know, trussonomics is not as strong as the sort of cult of Boris, as it were? I mean, again, you know, these are the the fissures of something much more profound going on in the Tory party. The Tory party is effectively in the place that the Labour Party was a few years ago. It is tending towards splitting. And someone has to either completely purge one side from it, or the Tory party will actually split in two. Because at the moment, just even the idea that you can keep people like, you know, Caroline Noakes and people like Lee Anderson within the same tent, that sort of, you know, really long traditional one nation benevolent Tory rump of the party. And so everything that is going on has to do with that war for the for the core of the Tory party. And the truth is that Tory MPs are addicted to chaos. I mean, most of them have actually known nothing else. If you think that the, the majority of Tory MPs actually came in from 2015 election onwards, then the majority of, of Tory MPs right now in the Commons have known nothing other than this constant infighting and constant instability they they don't have any other mode of being you mentioned lee anderson there who appears to be really the secretary for culture wars not the not the deputy leader so much uh, is that when it comes to some of the issues at the moment you know he's back been offensive having a go at charities and comparing them to people mm. smugglers now is this the only tactic the government has when it comes to asylum policy now, it would appear, sort of stir up hatred, shift blame, and just ignore it for the most part? Well, yes, is the short answer. It always has been their only tactic. The season of small boat crossing is almost upon us, by the way, which is why they're getting their, their ducks in a row, because uh, as the weather improves in spring, and we're now talking on the 20th of February, and the weather is already looking fairly mild, so the crossings will start again. And, you know, at some point they will need to translate all this into a local election strategy, and the local election will happen at the peak of 
the beginning of small boat crossing season in May. And so what else do they do? I mean, at some point, these sort of tactics become a necessity, you see, because it keeps people from looking at their actual records, from talking about their actual record. Is anyone talking about Priti Patel's repel tactics or the wave machines? Is anyone talking about the Rwanda plan? No. You know, that was like the biggest thing that was really going to sort this for a year and a half, up until a couple of months ago. But for this sort of intervention by Lee Anderson, people who are genuinely interested in this and concerned by this, all they would be talking about is what's happening to that Rwanda plan. So it's quite depressing as well when you mention that, that it seems like both ways that plan has has died off, the outrage at it and the focus on that side of things. It's also there's just so many, so many issues to... Uh, to try and push back on that it all... Yeah, it's like, you know... I mean, you stoke a fire on the promise of, you know, a secret extinguisher that's in your armoury. How many times are people going to buy it? How many times are people going to see you fail to put out the fire that you stoked? Eventually, it consumes you. It burns you. That's what always happens with these things. At the weekend, we saw more anti-immigration rallies, as well as these 15-minute city protests. Does it feel to you like we're set for a bit of a doom spiral of far-right rallies and conspiracy theorists get-togethers for the foreseeable future? I don't. Um, I think we're set for an attempt at it. Um, but I don't think we are set for some massive wave of uh, civil disobedience. I think the the right wing are out of ideas. And all they can think of is let's import some of what is happening in the United States. That's what it seems like to me. But I think such imports in, ignore fundamental differences in temperament between American civil society and British civil society. They ignore the appeal of the particular causes being fronted. I mean, you know, the notion, as wrong-headed and idiotic as it is, the notion that the last election was stolen in America, or, uh, you know, the notion that uh, uh, the, the civil rights movement, you know, Black Lives Matter, has gone too far now, they have appeal for large numbers of people in the States. Who fucking cares about 15-minute cities in this country to take to the street? So, you know, there's all of that stuff going on. It seems to me like doomed to be a failed attempt. And also the government is going really big on anti-protest legislation at the Mm. moment. What do you think will happen to the fabric of policing And policing is another thing that is very different in this country compared to what it is in the States, right? Mm. In the States, policing has a military hue to it. It is policing by force primarily. In this country, especially with the numbers of police officers that we've got at the moment, it's policing by consent. What will happen 
to that policing by consent, if officers start applying these new protest rules only to environmental protests while letting far-right wing nuts do the same for causes which enjoy much less public support. That could see a big wave of civil disobedience rise. That could see young people in the streets. Finally, on to, on to strikes, because that's another thing we unfortunately have to talk about every, every Monday at the moment. What are the, what are the latest developments there? Well, nurses announced uh, a full 48-hour walkout on the 1st to the 3rd of March, I think. Um, they announced that late last week. All of them are included, so they're making no uh, staggering of that. It, it will be a mass walkout. And it seems to me that if the government will cave on this, it will be in the next 10 days. And if they cave of nurse, on nurses it will start a domino effect where they begin to basically settle all all disputes. So whether this heads into a, a, a bigger, more bitter war, or whether it heads into settlement, I think we will know either way in the next 10 days. Uh, nurses will be the key one to look at. Uh, if, if a deal is done in the next 10 days and the strike 1st to 3rd of March is cancelled, then we're looking at a, a, a season of uh, sort of settlement. Looking further afield away from the, the UK, the search and rescue operation in Turkey after the earthquake has largely ended now. What is the, what's the state of things there? And just how long a road of recovery is there for Turkey and for Syria? Oh, God. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've been speaking to some friends over there the general um, vibe is that just people are abandoning cities and towns in that region almost entirely. Um, they are being flattened, uh, quite simply. Even the buildings that stood up are not really safe. So even they're being torn down. And the way it works in those slightly less organized large countries like Turkey is that people who are in the countryside, they always fare better than people in urban centers in those situations who do tend to starve. And so uh, what I'm hearing is that there is a massive internal displacement, huge movement of people, either going to other places where they have some relatives, or going to villages, basically, where there is the possibility of food and water, even in breakdown situations. I mean, I guess the silver lining is that all this is happening just before an election. So both Erdogan will do as much as possible, and the opposition will make significant promises on which they will be uh, judged, on which their re-election will depend. As we come up to a to a year in the the war in Ukraine, there have been warnings that China could supply Russia with with arms. What might this mean for the the state of the invasion? I mean, it would mean a major escalation of this as a proxy war. I think I suspect just my instinct at the moment is that it's not a real prospect. It's a it's a threat that seeks to bring the West to the negotiating table, because the West is effectively winning at the moment. Right? I mean. 
you could describe the situation as a stalemate. Ukraine seems to have enough to defend, but not enough to repel. And the West at the moment is going down the road of giving it more and more arms, while Russia has effectively ran out of options and ran out of allies. And so Russia losing this war is looking quite inevitable at some point in the future, unless it can muster a sort of new ally like China. China know this. I don't think China want Russia particularly to win in Ukraine, but I also don't think they want it to lose more widely than that. And so you have, you know, China's senior diplomat, Wang Yi, who is one of the few people able to talk to Russia and influence it at the moment, right? And so China has announced this peace initiative at the security meeting over the weekend. And we find out that it has been consulting behind the scenes with with, uh, countries like Germany and France and Italy on its proposals. Interestingly, not Britain, because I think its relationship with the UK at the moment is at at an all-time low. The idea is to try and strike some sort of balance to say that, yes, um, we have to respect Ukraine's territorial uh, integrity, but also Russia's legitimate security interest was, I think, the phrase he used. And so um, I would interpret this new threat of China supplying Russia with arms as part of that. I think that is the crowbar with which China is trying to bring the West to the table. Because there has to be a downside, right? And at the moment, there really isn't one for the West. They, they're they in a position where they could press their advantage to sort of cut Russia's feet from under it for the foreseeable future. And so China is coming in and saying, Russia is not friendless. We will let you push it out of the Ukraine, but no further. And so I think this feels like we are reaching a sort of equilibrium now. Alex, thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me. Listeners, if you enjoy Start Your Week, you can back us on Patreon to help us keep making it. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. You'll get every episode early and ad-free, plus a shout-out on this show. Here's Alex with today's. Thank you to Ian Sleeman, Puffle Nugget, Renat Schoolmasters, Martin Cackett. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and thank you for joining us for The Bunker. Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andreev. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard, with music by Kenny Dickinson. Start Your Week from The Bunker is a Podmasters production.